let's get started. We have a sex lab, a theory of evolution, and something called Spinder. How are these connected? Associate Professor Michael Kazumopic. Yeah, works for me. Is my guest <laughs> on today's episode. He's an evolutionary biologist at UNSW Sydney and yet manages to stay passionate about his love of video games. It sounds like he hasn't really grown up, my kind of person. <laughs> Michael, welcome to Stempunk. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Shane. <laughs> How was that for an introduction? Yeah, that works. I like it. I like right, it. Like. So let's actually start with your research. Yeah. Right. So you write prolific on the conversation, so that's a good place for anything to get sort of a general idea of what you do because yeah. it's a great online media outlet mm, for academics absolutely. to express themselves professionally but mm. yet have it at a jargon um, that everybody can understand. Exactly. And you, in your quote on your bio, says everything revolves around sex. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. Okay. Yeah, it kind of does. Um, it's not this whole idea that it's on people's minds, but the reality is evolution happens because of sex. Some individuals are successful, some aren't. Those ones, those individuals that are successful, their genes are passed on to the next generation, and you know, an evolution happens from that. So really, you know, evolution does revolve around sex, and all the decisions that animals and plants make, you know, revolve around sex. So it's although, yeah, it is a kind of catchy thing to say. It's also there's a lot of truth to it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So how did you get into this kind of research? I mean. I'm just thinking back as a teenager, obviously yeah. you love video games and also, I guess, you're thinking about sex. How yeah, that yeah. All... yeah, which teenager isn't thinking and about sex? And how did sex? that all evolve in yeah. that kind of word? If I yeah, <laughs> so I actually started my university degree wanting to be a, a dentist. Oh, right. Yeah, which, you know, thinking back now, I couldn't have, you know, picked a more horrifying career, I think. <laughs> but it, it really wasn't until my third year university uh, where I, I took a course in animal behavior just because I needed to fill a slot. Uh, yeah. And it ended up being the course that I loved the most. And obviously, it, you know, it started my whole entire career. After that, I realized, forget dentistry. I, you can do this for a living. Study animals is incredible. You know, I did an honors, I did a master's, a PhD, and you know, I'm here now. But it, it really all just started from taking a chance on a course that I wouldn't normally have chosen. Hmm. So I, that's it. That's why I think it's so important for for students specifically to be to to gain an understanding of a breadth of a, of experiences and things. Yeah. yeah, it's good to know that because with my experience with um, sort of high school students, they go, oh, they go if they're thinking a scientific career, degree has to be yeah. right, have to get the PhD yeah. and then get into that. But obviously, it's very fluid. And obviously, it, in your case, it was in my case, fluid. it was. Yeah, and I think I think it can be. I think it should be. But I think students, especially now, are under a lot of stress. Um, there's so many possibilities for jobs, you know. <laughs> yeah. if, I always create the analogy of like if you go to, you know, a smaller Chinese restaurant. Sometimes what you'll have, you open up the menu, will have like a hundred different things to choose from, and you're like, I don't know what I want to eat. There's too many things. Everything sounds so good, um, and that's what I feel like students are experiencing now. There's so many different career paths and jobs and possibilities using technology, not being on the internet, all these things that students are paralyzed mm. and it feels like they don't know what they should do. And sometimes school should just be experiencing different things and not having to worry about the path you go down. Mm. Because I think you will find that path once you really find that thing that you really enjoy. Mm. But 
getting that opportunity to find out what it is you enjoy is really hard for students nowadays because they're drilled with a lot of tests and quizzes mm -hmm. and things. Because, like you said, getting that degree is so important. But it's not really getting that degree. It's getting to making that decision about that degree, mm -hmm. which I think is so important. Yeah. Which is undervalued, I think. Yeah. I think yeah. we get too distracted with the piece of paper. Absolutely. Rather than the actual essence of what and the experience or even exactly. the in general gives you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we're seeing more and more of that now mm. uh, with, with science being knowledge acquisition yeah. uh, rather than this idea of trying to understand the world. Mm. Uh, which are two very, very different things. Knowledge versus understanding, yes. Yeah. The whole debate. <laughs> yeah, it would, absolutely. And I think, you know, understanding information is great, but, you know, everyone has access to that in their on their phone nowadays. So information only has value if you know how to use it. Yeah. So, so it's uh, like, do you want to be the Wikipedia of the universe? Yeah. Or do you want to be... I don't know what the other one. I don't know what the other, <laughs> other one is either. I think we need an example we need a word for it because every it's like knowledge is at your fingertips, but understanding exactly. what to do with that knowledge and can be misconstrued in the public absolutely because of all this. I'm doing air quotes now. Fake news. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it, and that's what makes it really, really hard. So yeah, I don't envy students nowadays. I think they have it a lot harder than uh, than mm. we did or that I did as as a student. Yeah. yeah. So thinking back to your high school days, yeah, as a young student yourself, so. What were you thinking back then? Obviously, you had a like. I'm yeah. I like to get inside like video games, mm. so, right? Because I was obsessed with video games. As which, a kid yeah, which kid wasn't? Yeah, <laughs> which male kid? Just specifically, yeah. but you know, as many women play them as well. But boys talk about it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I love video games. Still do. Um, <laughs> I don't have as much time to play them as I used to, which is the unfortunate bit. But yeah. uh, you know, high school was a, a, a weird time for me in the sense that it, it was a, a, a means to an end. Uh, is the way I kind of treated it. High school was this point for me to get into university and clearly I want to be a dentist. So I need to do these kinds of things <laughs> yes. to get to that point. Yeah. So that pathway was very clear and it wasn't until I was at university where the pathway, hmm. you know, I realized it was the wrong path for me. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I'm the perfect example of, of what people should, or what students should do in high school. Um, I know, it's just sort yeah. of getting your perspective on it, like juggling, uh, playing video games versus studies and everything. Oh, I'm so. sure my parents had a fun time doing <laughs> that, just like I have a fun time with my kids nowadays. Yeah. Uh, I think back then, you know, the video games weren't as of, uh, as immersive as they are now. Mm. So, you know, the fights that I had with my parents about getting off video game systems aren't as dramatic as the ones I think I have, I have with my children now, but mm. you know, that's what we always think. <laughs> well, to get a bit geeky, so yeah. what kind of consoles or computers did you actually interact with? and what were your favorite games? Oh man, I used to play the Atari 2600 all the time. I was oh, lucky Atari. to be one of the first, you know, kids to get one of those and my parents were clearly so kind. I don't think they realized, you know, the beast that awoke within <laughs> once they got that thing, but I used to play all the time. Mm. Um, and back then it was, you'd play with your friends, in the same room, right? Because there's no such thing as the internet. Yes. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I look back at those days and that was a lot of fun mm -hmm. because you got to play, you you play with your friends in the same room and you, the goal was to, everyone had a go. You, yeah. you had the controller for a bit and you pass it to your friend and then they'd give it a try. So, so it was only had one controller. Yeah, or sometimes it was two and you'd, yeah. you'd pass the controllers between a bunch of friends, yeah, yeah. but it was this, <laughs> you know, the video game experience was more social in that kind of a yeah. way than it is now. Yeah, so any particular game that stood out for you playing Atari? Oh, man, I, you know, they all blur into one nowadays, <laughs> to be honest. It was so felt, it feels like so long ago. Yeah, because I can't sort of, 
I connected with you on Tara or not familiar yeah. with the Tara because I was a Seeker person. Yeah, And fair I enough. got the first Seeker Master System thing. And so yep. Wonderboy uh, 3 yeah, the Dragon's yeah, Trap yeah. was yeah. my ultimate game playing on that yeah, uh, fair enough. console. Because um, we should emphasize, you grew up in Canada, mm. I take it. And growing up in Australia is either Seeker versus Nintendo. Yes. And Atari was this other thing on yeah, the side. Yeah, that was so, beforehand, yeah. yeah. So of course I was a Nintendo kid. Okay. And then I yeah, and then they had the Super Nintendo. So I went down that route mm. rather than the Sega. And I just remember playing the Mario games like crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I just used to play them all the time. Mm. Um, yeah. Fun memories. Yeah. Lots definitely. of hours wasted on the weekend. Of course, <laughs> man. You know, people waste hours all the time. Yeah. A lot of hours playing street hockey as well, which is what you do oh, in Canada. Oh, right. You did street hockey. Well, we yeah. grew up with street cricket. So yeah. similarities. Sim- yeah, there, yeah, yeah, definitely similarities there. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So, uh, what's fast track a bit to some yeah. of your PhD master's yeah. days and so can you describe the research that you did there and how did that actually get you out of Canada and you're in Sydney? Yeah. Places, so. so for my master's I actually worked on birds um, because that's what I did my honours on and that I realised was a huge mistake. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, birds, birds, are, birds are interesting? Or? No, birds are super interesting. They get up way too early. <laughs> so you have to be up before they are, which means you're up before dawn, which I'm not a morning person. Mm. So it was two years of that. And, you know, birds also travel in three dimensions and they fly, which makes them really hard to catch. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was great in the sense that I had a really awesome time doing my master's, met a lot of great friends. I also learned that I love research, but birds were the wrong organism mm. for me to study. And that's where I went into invertebrates. Okay. And yeah. that's why I changed to spiders during my PhD, which is kind of fun and interesting because I used to be an arachnophobe. All right. Yeah, and then just really jumped in. And I'm not obviously not an arachnophobe anymore because a lot of my research is done on spiders. It's, I remember, were you telling the story that you were afraid of spiders at the beginning of your PhD? Yeah. Didn't tell you supervisor? That's true. And at the end... I told her. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, I wouldn't have taken you on as a student if I knew. <laughs> so yeah, so sometimes it's not, it's important to not tell your supervisor everything. Yeah. Yeah. You should speak to there. the school psychology here and yeah. they'll talk about how to get over fear of our yeah. spiders. Do a PhD. Yes. Yes. No yes. That's exactly. You just got to jump in there, man. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, and not only did I jump into spiders, but redbacks, and that's what got me to Australia. Ah, yeah. redbacks, yeah. Yeah, so I did, so while doing my PhD in Canada for four or five years, uh, all my field work was done here. And then I started knowing people here, um, and that's how I started doing research here. I got a postdoc here because of all the people I knew, because of all the time I spent here doing work on redbacks. Mm. So that was kind of how I came here, and that was... 11 years ago, I started here as a postdoc. Yeah. So I've been kind of in and out of Australia for about 14 years. Oh, okay. So yeah. you've actually left Australia to come back? Or? Yeah. So I, I, during my PhD, I used to come back and forth, spend about four month, four to six months a year here. Oh, of course, during your PhD. Well, that's yeah. a good, great way of traveling. Yeah, it was. You have it was. to come to Australia because you've got to see these things called redbacks. Yeah, and exactly. Collect the animals and bring them back to Canada so we can rear them and do all the experiments in the lab. Oh, wow. So that must have been... Wow, okay. So yeah, surprisingly ex- easy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no one has any problems moving spiders around. Okay. There's no But you couldn't bring it, it would be hard to bring it back into Australia yes. because of all the uh, no, yeah, that, that would be, laws. Yeah, yeah that, that but would Canada's be fine with yeah, it. Yeah, Canada's fine with it. Yeah, we're <laughs> okay. You let redbacks loose in Canada. They won't survive, it's too cold. Ah, oh, yeah, of course. so that's why that's why the fear is not there. 
Um, but yeah, so, so you started yeah. off postdoc in, but you've established yourself now because you're yep. now associate professor. That's true. Yeah, yeah. So eleven years later, I'm a from a postdoc to a prof. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's been a lot of fun. It's been an interesting kind of journey. Yeah, uh, still work on spiders. Yep. I work on crickets as well, mm. and over the last few years, started working on humans. Oh, right. Yeah, and really learned that there's not much of a difference between yeah. all those animals. Wow, cool. And so, is that when you s developed the sex lab? So, the sex lab is, is not just me, but also Rob Brooks. Oh, oh yeah, Rob Brooks. And our whole that, cohort yeah. of students and postdocs and, yeah. and everyone. So, we, I was a postdoc of Rob's, and we worked <laughs> together, and then I was lucky to get enough a job here. Uh, so we, we work on a lot of questions together um, and he started working on humans before I did Okay. Yeah. and I really liked a lot of, always have liked a lot of his research mm. obviously, we work together and still do, but um, I always try to figure out a way to bring video games back into my research uh, Okay. Yep, yep. and that's how, that's how it kind of started. Because what I wanted to do is I wanted to explore some of the questions that I work on in crickets and spiders on humans, but I never figured out a, a way to do that. Mm. And just for a brief synopsis, what I'm really interested in is trying to understand how individuals use information about their social environment around them mm. to make decisions about how to develop and how to behave. Yeah. And how those decisions can maximize their fitness. Mm. So with crickets and spiders, a lot of what I do is manipulating the social environment and seeing the decisions that animals make. But as you can imagine, even though I wanted to explore that in humans, you can't put humans in little boxes and manipulate them <laughs> in these kinds of ways. Well, the ethics frowns upon that, however, uh, yeah, fair yeah, reasons, yeah, yeah, you I know. Can that, especially if you get calling it the sex lab. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It could be pretty weird. So, so we have to, you know, we have to try to figure out other ways of exploring these way these yeah. questions in humans, and that's where the video games came in. Oh, okay. So you're monitoring behavior through the exactly. game dynamics, rather than giving a boring survey or a questionnaire. Exactly. And survey science that way. Oh, yeah. Cool. Oh, yeah. So you can start manipulating how individuals perceive themselves based on if they win or lose, based on who they play, a man or a woman, oh. and then you can start seeing how they change their behavior as a consequence mm. and why and make that link of why they do that, the things that they do. So that's, a, as you can imagine, quite a lot of fun. Mm. Uh, so that's how we've been kind of linking the animal literature to the human literature and exploring the same kinds of questions in humans and spiders and crickets, but in different kinds of ways. Yeah. Any correlations? Are we any that different? We are animals? not that different. <laughs> we are very, very similar to a lot of other animals. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, which is a lot of fun to realize. Yeah. Any animals in particular that are, we're very similar to in terms of social behavior? Almost any. Almost any. The, the reality is we are no different from most animals because we follow the same kinds of rules. We've evolved just like all other animals have. We've evolved in this environment where individuals are trying to find mating partners mm -hmm. and having to compete for access to mating partners. So the same kinds of rules uh, and problems that other animals face, we face the same kinds of things. The interesting thing to me of what's happened over the last you know, 10 or 20 years in humans is now we're starting to see a lot more equality happen. Uh, okay, yep. Um, what we have is success isn't based on being strong and big. Success is getting a good job. And a good job has not, and not, almost nothing to do with how big and strong you are. It's mm. how well you can apply the skills you have. Yeah. So that means it's becoming less physical and or and another way to put it, less male, 
yeah. and becoming less gender specific. Oh, wow. So now what you have is you have men and women competing for the same kinds of roles or yeah. occupations, which provide them with monetary uh, mm. gains, which they could use to increase their own fitness mm. through a re reproductive way. So the interesting thing to me in what, what's happened with humans is how we compete for resources that we need has changed quite a lot over the last 10, 20, 30 years mm. and it's still changing to this day. Well, hopefully. Cause hopefully, Because yeah. the way we see stuff happening in the media Absolutely. and how we interact with work culture and that, it's still a lot way to go. Absolutely, but huge. Are you, are you seeing it's actually heading in the right direction when we properly get gender equality in oh, the workplace and in social culture as well? It's heading in that way. Yeah. It's just doing it so slowly. Uh, okay. Like you know. evolution, very yeah. slow steps. Yeah, 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 even slower sometimes it feels like. Um, but <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah. It's all a matter of perspective. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> but this is, I think this is what, what makes it really interesting to explore right mm. now. Because we can start using video games to see how individuals perceive themselves in mm. this kind of an environment. We can get a better understanding of why some men behave the way they do mm -hmm. in certain scenarios and why some women behave the way they do in, in other scenarios. Mm. So it gets us some insight into... Uh, gender-specific behavior uh, with an evolutionary kind of perspective which is kind of interesting mm. so I think that that's why I find humans quite interesting because we're one of the only organisms right now where that barrier between how men and women compete for resources is, is changing and shifting so rapidly which mm. is really cool yeah does your research continue uh, consider uh, the gender blurring and like because mm, you've also absolutely. got LGBTI yeah and we're really big here at UNSW Sydney, uh, yeah. Sydney about equity diversity and yeah inclusion. does the research reflect different behaviors in that or is it more still similar between um, people in terms of yeah. it, like from human to animal type stuff it's it's hard to say because not we're not at the point to be able to nail that down but it's also yeah. it's hard to get a large sample size of individuals from all those classes uh, okay, right yeah. um, so what we generally look at is sex male and female but we also try and look at gender across the spectrum of maleness and femaleness uh, okay yeah. um, I like that because um, yeah that word is spectrum because when I first heard about it it's getting getting too many letters and yeah, you just call it a sexuality spectrum. It might make it a bit easier because you, because sometimes Absolutely, people like to yeah. identify with a particular group, which is fine. And that changes over time as yeah, well. Exactly. So yeah. you actually shift in this um, absolutely spectral space, which is so, quite amazing. Yeah. So, science is really still figuring that out, how to mm. classify all, all that yeah. as well. And you know, when I say a, a male spectrum or a female spectrum, I'm not even getting into the sense of, you know, preferences or partner preferences and things like oh, that. Wow, yeah. I, that. That's another layer <laughs> deep and that's still difficult. That's even more difficult to understand. Uh, when I say maleness and femaleness, I'm just uh, looking at, we know, we all have a lot of male friends and a lot of female friends. And if we look at our male friends or female friends, we notice that some are more male or more aggressive, we would say. And mm. Some are less aggressive, even though they are guys. And the same thing happens in women as well. Some are more aggressive and some are less aggressive. So those traits that we normally associate with being a guy are expressed in men and women mm. at various levels. So uh, okay, that's that yeah, kind yeah. of yeah. Um, fluency that I'm kind of talking about, or gender variation, which is still so much variation, still difficult to yeah. kind of explore. But we're trying to get to that. Well, bit. you've got... Decades years of to research. Go. Years <laughs> to go. Yeah, absolutely. You, you yeah. clearly still have a job in decades to come. Oh, absolutely. I have no doubt. Yeah. Uh, no awesome. doubt. Awesome. So, 
on sort of your video game mm. application in terms of research, how does Spinder come into it? Yeah. So Spinder's a fun little game that I created with a friend of mine called Damien Elias uh, at UC Berkeley. And he's a, a prof there. And we've been working together since my PhD days. And we wanted to kind of create a game that helps students understand how traits evolve and the correlation between traits and why sometimes when we have big males that are, you know, big males are big, but they're not as colorful. And sometimes they'd be really colorful, but they're not as big. So there's these trade-offs happening. Mm. So Spinder kind of teaches that concept in this Tinder-like way where you're mm. swiping spiders from left to right to understand how traits evolve. Yeah. So we, we built that to help students understand these concepts, but we can also use that game to understand how individuals perceive traits. So we can see how long it takes an individual to swipe left or right on a spider uh, to understand how they're perceiving particular traits relative to others. Uh, so it's a human perception yeah. on spider yeah. traits of male, female. Yeah. Traits. So wow. this is this it's yeah. it's a really an understanding of how how different do traits have to be for an individual to respond in a particular kind of way. Mm. So we're getting uh, an idea about cognitively how we function when we make decisions. Mm. So that's kind of the data that we're able to get through that kind of way. So it, it provides this educational outcome, but also provides this research understanding of how our brains function and how we make decisions so we can get a better understanding of how signals evolve over time. Mm. So the, these games always kind of play double duty. Yeah, so it's great. Yeah. Like the, the game is great for the student because Absolutely. they learn about spiders. And yeah, like yeah. That. And you game because you get the research out of it. And you all game because it's all fun. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. So what we're actually doing is we're actually, in a way, making students citizen scientists through this, this gamified approach, which I think is really fun. Yeah. yeah, it's great. So more on that. So yeah, how did... The idea, because the company you started was called Aludo. Yeah. How did that all start? Because obviously it just didn't start with one game. You actually got now multiple games on we do. this platform. So can you talk about Yeah, it started story? about three years ago. And Spinder was one of the first games. Mm -hmm. And it really it, it was born for two kinds of reasons. Um, I felt that students, how students are interacting with the world was changing. You know, if we look at the last 10 years, mobile phones are just so important to everybody, yeah. including our students. So I felt that teaching had to change in some way to engage students. And I, when you look at the games, most educational games out there, they're more fun than they are educational. Yeah. Uh, so I felt that there need to be a better balance. Mm. And I also realized that a lot of my students weren't coming to class. So I was trying to find, and, and as a consequence, weren't understanding the concepts I was trying to teach them. So I was trying to find some new way to present those ideas to them. So that's kind of where our Ludo was born about three years ago. Mm. And it was really just an idea and playing around. I had a few interns uh, from a game development college that I gave a talk to about the things that I'm doing and they were kind of interested in. We just made a really simple prototype. Yeah. Our first game, which was called Blue Steel. Blue Steel. Yeah, which... Is that Zoolander reference? It is a, zoo, a Zoolander <laughs> reference. Most students have no concept about that reference. <sighs> Uh, just a prof. Has it been that long? It has been, been that long. long. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We grow up real fast. <laughs> yes. Um, cool. So that was a game where we taught students about the evolution of different mating strategies through this uh, augmented reality mm. game, where students run around pretending to be male bowerbirds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's really it's still one of my favorite games, yeah. and we've improved a lot on it over the last few mm. years. But I realized that game worked so well, mm. and. 
because of that, I thought there there's something to this way of trying to engage students in a new way and, and built a company around it. Got a small little grant from the government, matched a little bit of funding from our own, my own pockets, and hired a few people to work. And we've been kind of working on it over the last three years. Now we have more than 20 games, each teaching a different topic. Fantastic. Yeah. And the inspiration for the word Aludo? Yes. unusual. Yeah, it took us forever to try and figure out a name <laughs> because every name's taken. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you look at every startup, it's always some weird kind of name. Yeah. Uh, am I pronouncing it? You correctly? are pronouncing it perfectly correctly. Right. Yeah. And Arludo is the AR in Arludo stands for augmented reality. Okay, yes. And Ludo is Latin for play. Yeah. And what Arludo really means is this idea that we're blending the real and the digital world to give us students an opportunity to just play and discover. Mm. And they discover about science. Yeah. And that's awesome. the idea, yeah. Now, now you're advertising this platform not to just only undergraduate students, you're now targeting high school students? Absolutely. How's that going? So? It's going really well. So we've done a lot of incursions with a lot of teachers who have been friendly uh, about letting us in the classroom, which has been really cool. Uh, and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, because you see, often what you see is you walk into this classroom and students are there just ready to listen because that's what most science incursions are. Mm. You bring in a scientist to the classroom and the students sit there and listen to a scientist. Mm. And that's kind of the most boring way I think you can <laughs> teach people about science. I, I concur. That's yeah. why I don't like going to schools myself and yeah. giving a straight presentation. It has to be hands-on, interactive in some ways. So. Exactly. Mm. And what you find is most of the interactions are these what we see is these typical science experiments, mm. which work really, really well, and they're great, but often there's only a few ways of doing it. Mm. You have these really standardized experiences for students. So I wanted to, I wanted to create these kinds of experiences for students where the experience is always different, depending mm. on the students, yeah. because each of the students and each of the classrooms are different, yeah. but can always work, mm. because fundamentally what you're getting at is at something at a biological level and this bio, this thing always works because it's a fundamental building block of how we function mm. uh, so it's kind of fun to create these games that kind of get at this underlying humanity of who we are you create this game you give these students to play this game they inherently you know, intuitively learn how to play the game because it's this digital thing that they know how to interact with and as they're doing so they collect data and then those data appear at the front of the classroom all in like five ten minutes yeah and then you talk about it <laughs> so yes. they are the scientists wow giving them ownership of what they do is and i think that's super powerful mm. because now you're not just a scientist at the front of the class talking about science showing them this this science thing maybe it's you know a skull or uh, some animal that you're bringing to the classroom there you tell you talk to them about who you are you tell them to play this game they intuitively learn what you're talking about because they're doing that thing and then at the same time they collect data and they realize that it's not so hard to collect data data isn't this awful scary thing mm. and then you interpret the data with them in front of the classroom and then that's what science is to me it's discovering yeah and you're letting them discover these things for themselves in the classroom and I think that's when students really learn Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's a really hard thing to do, but I think technology is really good at that yeah. if we can harness that power. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to do. 
That's amazing. It's fun. It's yeah. a lot of fun. And seeing yeah. kids' faces is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And teachers so, as well. It's still early days. It still is. Yeah, yeah. But so obviously you, you want to wrap it up a bit more. We do. Yeah. yeah. So where do you see, beyond, obviously, inspiring kids in the classroom, yep. but where do you see Aluda on the greater scale? Would you like to see um, go national, international? Absolutely. Yeah. So we're right now, so we've, we've got 20 different games. We're connecting all those games to our dashboard right now. So right now, all our games are this opportunity for students to play. Uh, and by the end of this year, it'll be that data collection that's happening. All, all, uh, no students have to log in, so they don't have to worry about any of their private information or anything like that, mm -hmm. because it's all anonymous. Yeah. And then all the, those data are collected and will be available for students. And we'll have all that ready by the end of the year. Once we do, we'll, we'll go more of a national push and probably by the end of the year, try and go global. But yeah, the idea is just to, to get students more interested in science yeah. and science as an endeavor rather than science as an acquisition of knowledge. Yeah, and understanding the thought processes of what other scientists actually do. And I think that's so, so important now. You know, we're pushing STEM so, so hard, the science, technology, engineering and maths. But if you look at most of it that's out there, a lot of it is coding. A lot of it is robotics kits, which are great, but you know, STEM is much, much more than those things. So what does STEM mean to you then? Yeah, <laughs> to me, it's really the understanding of how to work together as a team and how to solve problems. A lot of people call that design thinking, uh, problem-based learning, there's a billion names for it. Mm. But really, science at its core is looking at something, understanding the problem, trying to find a solution that prob for that, to that problem, uh, designing an experiment to understand whether that solution works, mm. and then interpreting those data to yeah. really see. And that's all science is. And you know, when explaining it that way, some of the listeners may realize that's what being an entrepreneur is ah, as okay. well. Yeah. You know, it's seeing a problem. Oh, teachers, for us, for Arluda, was teachers are struggling to teach science in the classroom. So our solution was, well, how can we use digital tools to do that? Okay, you create a few games. Does that solve that problem? You test that and then recreate those games. And that's all that is. And that's science. So we've used science to create the games for teachers as well. Hmm. So now we want students to be able to learn and teachers to be able to provide opportunities for students to learn these concepts in the classroom in a classroom's amount of time mm. in 50 minutes. Yeah. Short block of time. Yeah, so that but means But their attention span is probably a quarter of that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you want to engage them in this kind of a way. Yeah. So to, to answer your question, what is STEM to me? STEM is really getting kids excited about thinking about problems. Oh, exciting about thinking. Oh, yeah. what a great, that's... So it's a, it's a little bit different than I think how most people define STEM. Yeah, most people say, science, technology, engineering, math, yeah. it's a way of thinking, but you're probably the first one who said it's a, it's a way of um, thinking in an excited way yeah. about life, I guess, about the it world is. around them. Because a scientific thinking can be applied to anything. It's applied to economics, it's applied to business, uh, it's applied to everything. It's just a f an understanding of how to go about solving a problem. Mm -hmm. And I think it's super, super important to teach skills teach students these skills today because of how data is being used, of how information is being presented. So it doesn't matter if students become scientists or not, thinking like a scientist is important in any field.
and that's what I want to try and teach or help students understand. Wow. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> very like-minded, it's yeah. great. <laughs> very good, biased. I'm glad. Yeah. But it could be very biased, unfortunately. Yes, well, yes. As well. Okay, well, uh, we've talked about a lot of stuff. We did, I'm yeah, yeah. It's about time. Yeah. Um, so there's two other questions I yeah, want to sure. really ask you. Um, one could be quick, uh, quickly, um, mm. well, because you really basically nerded out about all sorts of stuff. So what, yeah. what are you most nerd out about? Would you use this question there? Yeah, I don't know. It feels like there's so many different things right now. Um, I am a huge fan of anime. So if uh, I get the time to nerd out nowadays, I do spend most of my time doing that. I still do play some video games, but now with video games often being so big, mm. Um, well, are you building, uh, creating build, uh, video games? Yeah, and that's super fun because <laughs> I get to work with scientists to help them help scientists, you know, s uh, translate their message into something that is uh, easy for people to understand. And I also work with creative people, all these designers and programmers that create, find a way to create that message. So I guess that in a way, that's how I geek out a lot. Mm. Um, I've made my job something that I love doing. It's great. Yeah, it's which very is rare, I think. It's and a, it, yeah. hopefully with sort of all this way society's going, then hopefully they'll people enjoy their jobs a bit more. Ideally, and enjoy life. At the same I hope time. so. Uh, yeah. You know, and th and this is I think part of where the students struggle. Getting back to what we talked at the beginning, mm. they want to do something fun, and they realize how important you know lifestyle their lifestyle is, uh, but many of them don't know how to make a job out of that yeah and we have seen that over the years youtubers and things like that and now that's becoming such a stressful career as well creating content constantly you mm. probably know it well <laughs> um i think we'll find a balance and i think students are will find their path yeah it's just a, a lot harder to get there yeah, yeah. of course all right so as a tradition with the yes. episodes uh we always ask the guest to ask the question for the next guest mm -hmm. so our previous guest was kirsten banks yes um I don't know if you heard of Kirsten Banks. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So she's, uh, I think she's now graduated with honors and starting to think about doing a PhD next year. She's done a lot of astronomy stuff and done yep. like Aboriginal astronomy and yeah, science so communications. Cool. Yeah, yeah. She wants to be uh, her version of Brian Cox. Yes, me. yeah, yeah. Well, she wants enough. to be the first Kirsten Banks. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so because she already is, but she wants to get a name out there, so it's great. Good on uh, her. But her question is how can we improve science engagement for those who dislike science? And it's a tough one. I think that's really the, the holy grail right now because what we end up seeing in a lot of science events are people who love science. And we don't need to convince those people science is cool. They already know. That's where they're coming to those events. Exactly. Yeah. What we need to do is get people who normally wouldn't come to those events out. So what that means is embedding our science into other things people find interesting. Mm -hmm. And that means it requires scientists to become uncomfortable ah, okay. about yeah. what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, because us going out there talking about what we do, that is done to death and people don't want it anymore. Mm. I think it's finished. And scientists have to realize that there is more to what we do than that little thing that we always go out there and talk about. Mm. And we need to figure out how to apply our understandings to other things. And there's a really, really cool example of Derek Williamson, uh, who's the director of the... the uh, Museum, Museum of Human, Human Disease, Disease here at UNSW. Yeah. He told me they put together a circus show. Ah, yes. Where they had all these 
performers doing really super weird things. So it's one of those kind of weird circus shows where you have people stretching their skin and holding weights with pieces of skin Ooh. or their lips and things like that. <laughs> okay. And then what they had scientists come and do is explain why you know the skin is so stretchy why right. these people are able to do the things that they do so they got people out to see all this weird crazy circus stunt kind of stuff and then taught them science so they weren't targeting science people they were targeting people who love circuses or love performances <laughs> yes of course and then hitting them with science yeah. that's what we need to do okay create events that the general public want to see and then add a little bit of science interest into there. Mm. Not too much, just a little bit to get them intrigued about it. Yeah, yeah. And that way I think we can get it into more of the mainstream where people aren't, oh, that's why that happens. Oh, that I never knew that. Mm. Uh, those are the kinds of moments that we need to create in, in, in public and in culture, which are really hard for scientists to do because it means us stepping out of our comfort zone. Ah, well, I good solution. The, well, it's a, it, well, it's not a solution. Yeah, yeah. You've got to test it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so to all the people who love science communication out there, you know, this is a, such an important area now. Find some new unique ways of getting, you know, getting ideas out there and talking to people. Uh, that's, I think that's going to be the next step mm. that we have to figure out. Yeah, yeah. great answer. Just thinking about what we do and we're not quite <laughs> well it's you know it's hard to figure out yeah. all these new things you know podcasts weren't a thing you know five years ago yeah until someone thought oh let's try and, and do this a little bit differently mm. and th it works yeah and now a lot of people are doing and it. and right? there's a like us included it's very hard to get a voice out there and plus people exactly. who established in the radio career already have a lot of followers exactly sort of um, they're winning in that scene yeah, because they're yeah. loving it because they can do it on their own terms exactly because people listen on their own terms exactly and we're becoming a bit more I guess fluid in our own day-to-day -day lives rather Absolutely. than sitting down in front of the TV or um, sitting around the radio or the wireless or whatever yeah yeah exactly at a certain time every yeah. night that you got to get your favorite program yeah. in that has all changed now it's yes weird and yes. it's changed for our generation. Absolutely. Certainly not for the younger generation because they probably think this is all normal for them. Exactly. Uh, one of the weirdest things like uh, internet for certain people is just like that's standard. I remember when like in my teenage years, dial-up internet came in and then suddenly broadband. And uh, getting, I like the idea of dial-up, yeah. but yeah. broadband or this continuous flow connected to the internet. This is scary. Why would <laughs> anyone want to connect all the time to the I know, internet? I know. And now? It's like... I get it now. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Couldn't live without it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I was like, wow. It's like, oh, it, it's not now, like 10 years ago, five years yeah. ago, it's like, oh, I've got to get connected to the internet. Now it's like, where's the Wi-Fi connection? Yes. It's, like, it's, it's from yes. that point of view, from an evolution yeah. point, I find that quite fast. Do you incorporate that, like technology? Oh, absolutely. Your own research in that from a society point of view? Absolutely, yeah. because technology has changed how we interact with one another yeah. and the scale of those interactions. Mm. It's so easy for me to now, you know, text and email and Skype someone in Canada, which, you know, that, you know, 20 years ago, that would have been a terrible phone call or a letter. Yes. Oh, what are those things I again? know, exactly. <laughs> 
So, of course, this has changed the scale of our interactions as a consequence, the information that we can consume mm. and compare ourselves against. So, yeah, I, I'm super fascinated about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of my research uh, explores those questions. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, check out um, your articles on the conversation because it's great because you're really pro video games. I am, absolutely. doesn't provoke violence and everything oh, God, like that. Oh, no. Yeah. Because yeah. um, what then, like, for those people who argue uh, that video games... Um, cause violence mm. in teenagers mainly I guess um, what is the counter what is actually induces violence in teenagers then what is the sort of the counter argument to that oh my god anything induces violence in teenagers or adults for that matter yeah think, think of the last time you were in from in sitting in behind your steering wheel and someone cut you off <laughs> did yes. you get angry you get probably bit, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how about the last time you're in a coffee queue and someone buds in front of you <gasps> You know, yeah. So all the, you know, we get upset about all kinds of things. Do those things make us more aggressive and make us more violent? Oh, probably not. Mm. And just like losing in a video game doesn't, or killing doesn't. You know, there are other underlying things that can lead to that that have a much bigger effect. Mm. Um, You know, bad things doesn't necessarily lead to aggression. Aggression doesn't necessarily lead to violence. There are a lot of steps in between. Yeah. And just to think that vid- one thing, video games, causes one thing, violence, oh, nothing's that simple. Yeah. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. I'd love to talk more about yeah. this. <laughs> I know um, that's a whole three other episodes, yeah, never exactly. mind. Uh, so maybe that could be another episode. I'm happy yeah. to interview you again in about a year's time. To yeah, see how sure. Go. Well, we could talk uh, about lots of the research that hopefully will happen by then. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I better ask, do you have a question in mind for our next guest, knowing that we don't know who the next guest Yeah, knowing who, yes. So I did have a really good one, and now I've kind of forgotten it because we've talked around, I should have written it down. But it kind of sat around the idea of, is it actually important for all scientists to communicate their research to the public? Very good question. There's an argument, people argue one way or the other. I'm on one camp, but that is gonna have to be up to the next person to to discuss. And I don't wanna ask your opinion because that's- I don't wanna bias it now, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. That's assuming that the previous, uh, the next person listens to this episode Yes, that's true, that's true. You probably have not listened to to Kirsten Banks episode. (laughs) I I haven't, and now I'm gonna have to, yes. Well, Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Shane. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks. Yeah, so hopefully we um, do this again sometime. Yeah, I'd love to. Cool. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks, Shane. is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.